it's entertaining because it's it's two guys with a dozen concussions that, that <laughs> decide to write a book. Our poor ghostwriter, man, he's a he, he's going straight to heaven. That poor guy. So I tell people it's like one level above the books that you pull the tab and the T Rex's arms and his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show, an entertaining podcast with two best-selling authors connecting readers with an eclectic array of distinguished guests through lively conversation and interviews. Hosted by mystery suspense and thriller writers, Douglas Pratt and Nicholas Harvey. Hey folks, welcome to another exhilarating podcast. You know what we have, <laughs> an exhilarating intro, right? <laughs> that was brilliant. I liked it. Exhilarating. Wow. I feel like I'm, I'm already letting everybody down. So. Yeah. Do you feel like I sold that good enough? <laughs> you did very well. <laughs> I was doing good. I was keeping a straight face until you lost it. <laughs> it was just, uh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Let me continue. We've been remiss. We haven't thanked a handful of people that have been... Uh, key in uh, getting our show off and running. So who do we need to thank? You uh, started off there. Well, uh, actually, we had our good buddy, a fellow tropical author as well, uh, Armand Rosamilia, who is a, he's a veteran podcaster. He has been on the air for quite a while. I forget. He told us when it was, but he's got, he has the uh, Mando Project with a few other podcasts out there. But he was just amazing with some of the advice he gave us on how to get everything started and how to make sure we sounded right and didn't say words like exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we've accidentally not followed most of his uh, <laughs> advice and that's why you get what you get people. Right. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Armand. You killer job uh, getting us rolling. And if you haven't listened to his podcast, Mando Project, there's uh, about a gazillion of them because they uh, did them every week. For, oh, he, uh, he goes on. Yeah. There's his totally. He's also on Twitch uh, and a few other sites. If you look up Armand, that guy writes more words a week than I write in probably three months. Oh, he's insane. He's, he is very prolific. He's a busy, busy man. I don't know how he gets away with all that. So Machine. Yes. All right. The other uh, next one we need to thank is uh, the wonderful and gorgeous, lovely Kim Breton, who did the voiceover at the beginning and end of the show and makes the sound almost professional. Till Thanks, start Kim. talking. <laughs> yeah, till, till I start saying exhilarating. <laughs> exhilarating. Yeah. So anyway, Kim, thanks a ton for doing oh, that for us. And don't forget Sam, who's uh, from Right Royal Audio over in the UK. He's helped us got, get started, and he does all the editing of the show to actually piece us together so you won't hear us say stupid things. <laughs> I don't think he can edit it that much. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd just be silence. <laughs> it'd be Kim's intro, outro, and nothing in between. Well, what it says is there's a lot of stuff in there. What they hear, they're like, well, that's not stupid. Then they'll be like, man, he must have said some really stupid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, so what have you been up to, Nick? Let's see. Well, this week's show is uh, titled uh, Going Nuts. I don't know why we title the show because we don't often talk about any of it, but it's uh, appropriate because I spent a little time at the University of Miami Health having my head examined, which has been, uh, uh, there's a lot of that been going on. Was it, was it exhilarating? So. <laughs> it, it was It was actually bloody awful. So, you know, if anyone's followed my newsletter, I talked about it a little bit. I have an issue. <laughs> Everyone's going, yeah, you've got issues, mate. <laughs> but I, I've had this strange thing that I've had for most of my adult life uh, where I fall over occasionally. And um, we can't seem to figure out what it is. I won't go into great detail, but they're, they're trying. It's something up in the noggin where my wiring is a bit uh, messed up. And um, so I just had a couple of days of intense uh, examinations and tests on my ears uh, and inner ear. And they looked at this years ago, but then they've returned to it with better equipment and stuff. And some of these tests are insane. This lovely young lady who was very, very good at her job tortured me for a whole afternoon and actually I left there going, well, she was nice. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, you were in Miami, you can get that <laughs> yeah, kind of thing there. So. Yeah. But they basically do everything that'll make you puke. So I actually got, it, it's like an electric chair. Literally you, she opens the door to the room and you look and there's this, imagine a large barrel turned on end with a big door that opens it's kind of a curved room, circular, but curved 
top to bottom, big door opens and inside is an electric chair. And they strap you to that chair, close the door. So you're in this tiny enclosed area. You don't know how tiny it is, except for the fact that you saw the door closing because now it's pitch black inside. You've got goggles on your head and you have to look at little red dots and then they start spinning the chair. Wow. That's sounds like a ride at Disney World. If so. you want to not feel well, I recommend this treatment. Well, it's not a treatment, it's a test, but it's a it's a set of tests to see how well your inner ear is working and all that kind of thing and what your balance is. And so anyway, apparently my inner ears work perfectly. They're really good. But the signal that goes somewhere up into the gray matter up there is broken, so uh, which is what we kind of thought it was. So onwards, more tests. You're British. Is it possible your plugs are just backwards? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not grounded. You're not grounded. I don't, just, just a thought. <laughs> well, that's American, actually. Some of your, some of yours are three prongs. Some of the two, it's like, ah, screw it. We'll ground it later. Yeah. So I've been doing that, but that was uh, earlier this uh, month or the end of last month, I think. And then um, uh, let's see. If you don't know, we're in Saint Martin. I think we talked about this last time. We're in the island of Saint Martin, which is uh, lovely. We've been uh, doing a little bit. Diving. We went out with Ocean Explorers, good little op here, and we've done a couple of dives with them. We zipped over to Anguilla, which you can see from St. Martin, uh, like 25-minute ferry ride across, which 10 minutes of is getting out of the harbor to go there. Um, and Anguilla is really nice, um, great beaches. And we went diving with uh, a guy called Rob Willisher and his, uh, his first mate, Xander. Vigilant divers, they're called. If you're over in Anguilla, look up Rob. Really good operation, nice little uh, boat, um, super guy. Uh, we did a wreck dive. They've got about seven artificial reef wrecks over there. We had a dive on a little freighter that's uh, got broken up in a hurricane, but it's you can still get inside and wiggle around a little bit in there. And really cool dive. And then we dove on a on a on a reef not far from there. So yeah, good trip over. So yeah, we're enjoying being here on the island. It's uh, you know we're working all week, both of us. My my wife's working full time. We're both obviously remote. I'm a little more flexible on my uh, times of day. But, um, but yeah, it's worked out really well. Did you just finish a book too? I just finished Burning Summer, which comes out on the 26th. So it's in the final editing stage. Priceless, which is by Deborah Brown, Don Rich, and myself. It's next in the Tropical Authors series. That's done is in final editing, and that'll come out, let's see, next month. And then currently I'm writing Faceless, uh, my section of Faceless, which is with AJ Stewart, our guest from the other week, and uh, Nick Sullivan, who just had uh, one of his come out, Deep Hex, come out uh, earlier this month, um, did really well. Uh, love Nick's stuff. I listened to it on audiobook, and of course, he's a professional narrator, so he does a mega job of narrating his own books. And then Missing in the Keys, and I think it's as we're recording this, it's your turn to yes, write a chapter. Yes, you got it. Yeah, you're trying to pressure me. I'll get it done, I promise. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm on. So, I'm actually looking forward to it. So, good. So, apart from writing the next chapter of Missing in the Keys, what have you been up to? I've got also kind of like you. I've got a lot of projects in the works. I'm steadily working. I have Havana Sunrise just came out in uh, March, so we're in April now. So. It's been out. I'm already working on the next Chase Gordon book, uh, which is called uh, Gulf Dreams. It's kind of just in the early stages of that uh, right now, which is exciting. It's going to be a little more treasure hunt, uh, throwing a little bit of pirates and some some bad guys of some sort who will be running around killing people. But I'm also working on the uh, first book in my Corsair series, which is going to take place in uh, Puerto Vallarta. So I got to go and do some research back in January down there and I'm really excited about this one. It's going to be kind of more of a, I don't know, kind of a Jason Bourne kind of a feel to it, only tropical because I like the warmth. Cool. So that's keeping me busy. But speaking of that, while while we're recording this right now, uh, I'm leaving later this week to head to L.A. and then on to Hawaii for a week. Uh, spend some time down there with my wife, and it's our anniversary coming up. So kind of excited. I've never been to Hawaii, so it's kind of a new new place for me to go check out. So. I've been there a couple of times. Cheryl and I went there 20 years ago, probably. I think it was about 20 years ago. And we were diving off the big island with some friends. Uh, great diving there. Really cool. Yeah, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to get some snorkeling in. I don't know if we get some diving in. We're going to try to squeeze a lot in to see. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough when you go the first time to some place. You got to see everything all at once. <laughs> My wife and I love to travel. So it's, it's probably our favorite thing to do. Uh, we don't 
you know, so when we go, we're going to just go nonstop and try to see everything uh, without stopping. So I know we've got a jam packed week uh, in there. So even while we're in LA, we're going to be bouncing around. To, we're going to go see La Brea because we've never done that. Find some good food because, you know, I'm fat. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, so we better move on. So do we have any questions from audience questions? Ah, yes, we do. Uh, and it is from Ed White in St. Louis. And he had a question. He, after listening to us, I think, talk with uh, Nick Thacker, he said he'd actually like to hear some more on the basics of our writing process. All the references to outlines, dictations, and character sheets fascinated him. Apparently, Ed is ex- easily fascinated. So... <laughs> Well, why don't you take a lead with that? What a, let's start with your processes. Um, how do you re- go from no idea to final copy? Yeah, there's a lot involved in that. That's probably a whole show to itself. But uh, the give us the thumbnail the out- version. <laughs> yeah, the thumbnail version is I write in a in a program called Scrivener, um, which is geared to um, it's a specific author program. Some people plot everything out in detail. Some people pants it, which means they write by the seat of their pants. And I'm somewhere in between, so I have to have certain elements of the story put together in my mind before I can start moving ahead and writing. So I use Scrivener to do the writing, and they have a plotting element in there that you can use. But I'd use a simple Excel sheet, and I lay out there. I have an idea of how many words I want per chapter to keep the tempo going. And I start filling out those chapters. And I start off with maybe four or five chapters with notes in it to get the ball rolling and what I want to do and and the basic uh, subject. Then I start writing and then I start filling out the chapters as I go along and something will come up that, okay, I want that to happen later in the story and I'll drop it in there three quarters of the way through or wherever I want it to be. And that's how it goes. I just keep writing and keep adjusting my plot sheet that eventually gets, gets filled out. And normally about halfway through the book, I'll look at it and go, oh, my God, this is going to be the shortest book ever. And I don't know what I'm going to do in the last bit of it. And early on, I used to panic at that stage. And um, now I know, don't worry about it, because it's all just going to start coming into place. And now I get towards the end of it and I'm like, holy shit, how am I going to make this not an epic 100,000 word thing and get it wrapped up? So I aim at I aim for 70,000 words in my books and generally they come out um, – between 72 and about 84,000 uh, when I'm done on average about 76,000. So that's kind of my process. How about you? I'm less of an outliner, uh, as you know, as we've been working together. You're way more planner than you are pantser for sure, uh, after having written a little bit with you on Missing in the Keys. Only when uh, I work with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> i got to keep I'm, a leash on you. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely in, in the um, in-between. I, I, I started out just pantsing it all together, not having any idea where I'm going to go with the story. You normally I'll, uh, I'll have a general idea. There's one I write right now. Golf dreams is a perfect one. I was, I've been so busy that I had a, a title, but not really a good storyline to go with it. So I, I started working on the storyline and I'll, and I'll develop a few plot points along the way that I want to hit. I usually plot a little bit out. Like I know where it's going to end. And then I just plot a little bit, you know, three or four chapters ahead because if I don't, I'll end up veering off the outline anyway, because sometimes something comes along. I'm like, ooh, this is a good, you know, I get to do that. Something fun. So I'll tend to kind of veer off that way. I do have, for the most part, my characters, though, I, I like to keep up with, uh, at least the main characters. I'll add a few side characters or, you know, ancillary characters along the way that uh, will either get killed off or don't matter a lot. But for my main characters, I really like to delve into them a little bit more, kind of see what makes them tick uh, and have fun with them. So do you keep a profile on your characters? Uh, well, in Scrivener, I, cause I also use Scrivener, you can make character sheets and I need to update a little bit more. So for my main character chase, I, I have a good idea of what he does. And if I add some new element, I try to go through and add that in there less. So for some of the side characters, cause they're, they're not as important, but uh, I do have some plans with at least one of the side characters of writing a series with him. And so I'm probably going to, have to dig a little deeper into him and add a little bit more backstory to what he has. So, but no, cool. uh, oftentimes I do find myself going, well now crap, what was the sister's name? And I have to go <laughs> back and do a book and find it. Cause I've never added that into the, into the information. So 
I've got better over time at keeping my character sheets up. Uh, my main characters all have uh, sort of outlines, just details about their physical appearance, as I've described it, details of anything about their history that might be reoccurring so you don't step on your what's it, you know, uh, later on. Yeah. <laughs> and talk about them. I still do that, though, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I still, still do that, yeah. But, yeah, you try not to talk about them coming from a city that is a new city that from the last time you talked about it. I started doing a master character sheet, which I have got not very far with. Basically, the books, since I started it, I've written about three or four books. And each book I write, I'm keeping up with it. But it's hard to go back through your old books and pull out all the characters and put them in this master. If, unless you do it from the get-go, it's tough to go back and do it. I'll tell you something else, and I think you kind of got me doing this too, is I've, I've started looking at, so when you write, you, you'll pull pictures of oh, what yeah. you're describing. Um, yep. And so that's really been something I've, I've kind of stolen away from you is I, I started doing that. When I did this with Havana Sunrises, you know, it started out in a hotel that I, I couldn't go to to see. So I just, I Google Maps does wonders and I could pull off images to see what I want to describe. And um, generally I have uh, open tabs that have everything from architecture, the anatomy of a building, different architecture types. So I, I know what I'm describing without switching back and forth to going, well, the greenhouse over there. So. <laughs> yeah. It's nice when you're familiar with it, but I mean, we can't go everywhere in the world that we write about. No, and, yeah. And, and if we tough. wrote about the same square mile every time, it would get, get boring, right? right. So, uh, <laughs> and especially as we venture out and doing our Green Wolf series together, um, where it's going to move around the world, there's going to be locations where – Maybe we've been, or it's been a very long time, or we haven't been at all. So, or maybe we should go. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah we should just uh, we should come up do. with uh, locations that people are missing that we want to go to. Right, just an yes. excuse to go there and research. So, all right, we're we're rambling like crazy. We better get on with the show. Absolutely, so, yes, let's do. <laughs> so this this week's show is titled "Going Nuts," and it's talking about balancing work life and home life together. That was the theory. Of course, we barely touch on that at all. But the guy that we're going to be talking to is is uh, a very interesting fellow. Uh, and he's banged his noggin a few times because he was a former pro ice hockey player. He was a NASCAR Jackman. I'm going to wait for you know you to giggle now because you're going to giggle at that. Every time we say Jackman, he giggles. Yeah. I'm going to say Jackman is going to be the name of a series I do. Of a, I think that's awesome. He, he's, do you think Hugh would come and play the part for you? If I could ever get Hugh to answer one of my tweets or something like that, but no, he's he's always too busy. <laughs> <laughs> Back on the point we're making here is <laughs> Sean Pete's the name of the guy, and he was an NASCAR Jackman. He's now a pit crew coach and runs the uh, with uh, with a group of other fellows runs Truckhouse Racing Cup teams pit crew, and he's the co-owner with Mike Metcalf of Deck Leadership and the co-author of Twelve Second Culture. So. He's gone from uh, being this uh, hockey thug to um, running uh, deck leadership, which is uh, uh, which is all about diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. And he talks to uh, corporate groups and stuff. So um, we're real happy to have uh, Sean on the show. And here's a little chat with him. And our guest this week, Mr. Sean Pete. Welcome to the show, Sean. Gentlemen, great to see you. Good to see you too. I'm going to start off by mentioning that you have quite the sports background. You came from hockey. You played from a young age, right? And then you had a, a scholarship to the US of A. You're originally from Canada. Is that correct? Correct. And then you played in the uh, in the minor leagues? Correct. Okay. And, and what was your forte when you were playing hockey? Were you a big goal scorer? No, I didn't score many goals. Uh, not great at the skating part. I, I don't know what would you, what term would you use pugilist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, in doing a little research, I found a site called Hockey Fights, and I barely got Sean P in. I didn't even have to put the E, and it sprung your name up. And there was a whole list of, of uh, events involving you. So, how does a man who kick the crap out of any, everybody he could see on a on, on an ice rink? came to do this thing called Deck Leadership, which stands for Diversity, Efficiency, Culture, and Kindness. 
Yeah, I think it's just my me repay, trying to repay the world for uh, being a slow learner, Nick, is, uh, is what it is. <laughs> I wondered if it was payback or if actually it was there all along. And every time you slammed a guy against there and he dropped to the floor, you're like, I'm really sorry for doing that. That's my job. <laughs> exactly. Just guilt-ridden in the locker room. <laughs> all right. So tell us about uh, deck leadership and what that's all about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Mike Metcalf and I, uh, we run the picker department at Chip Ganassi Racing. And we were actually invited up to um, the NFL Combine to speak simply because Indianapolis is a racing city. The Combine's held up there and um, we could string a couple English sentences together. So they're like, we want you guys to speak up there. So we went up there. We're not public speakers. Uh, We did 30 minutes and we thought it was terrible. And um, at the end of it, about 30 people stuck around, people from the Chiefs and the Texans and the Saints. And we're leaving the convention hall And this guy stops us and we get into this really great conversation. And he said, hey, guys, look, I took more notes in your 30 minutes than I have the first two days of this conference. And at the end of it, I was like, well, well, who are you with, man? And he said, well, I'm I'm with the New England Patriots. And right then, you know, and Nick, you might be able to speak to this. When you're in NASCAR, you don't think you have anything the world needs to hear. Right. And, And at that moment, it's like, you know what? Maybe we are doing something right. Why don't we package this up? and and write a book about it. So that was kind of the the moment that kind of lit this whole thing off for us. It's interesting in our notes about the show. It's And I was talking to uh, Doug beforehand. It's like, okay, how do we connect this without insulting a large number of people? <laughs> how do we discuss the fact that this, bringing this culture into NASCAR is, is very unique? Yeah. Well, I, you know what? For us, we had no choice, right? We inherited uh, a pick group department that was um, outside the top 25. It was a dumpster fire inside a dumpster fire. And they gave us half the budget to fix it. So one thing that we realized is, is if we did it the way it was done, or if we did it the way everyone else was going to do it, we were going to get killed. So like we sat down and we thought, okay, how do we do this different? Right. And, and diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness was, was the method, right? It was, you know, the diversity of opinions, we have the most racially diverse team in the history of NASCAR, but it was founded on one single principle. Our teams we compete against recruit out of the Big 12. They run 40 times. They do all that stuff. We put nothing above being a world-class human being. If you're that, we can get you to the finish line, right? And, and just by going after people like that, we built this team, right? Culture. We knew that if we valued people more, we would get more out of them. So we know everything about our athletes. Right. I, I can I have 26 athletes warm up this morning. I have all their important dates in their lives in my phone. I can put my hand on one of them this morning and said, hey, don't forget to call your dad. It's his birthday today. Oh, right. Wow. We, 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 we're just we're invested in people. Right. And then kindness. Right. You know, nothing as someone who accumulated a thousand minutes in, in minor league hockey. The, the guys that drive me crazy are the ones that say kindness is weakness. I know some really bad human beings. They're some of the kindest people on this planet. So that was our formula for success. And, and, and like I said, took us a couple of years, put one of the teams in the top 10, then both the teams in the top 10. And then just this past year, we were awarded NASCAR's highest honor in the picker department, which is the Mechanics Wear Award. So we stuck to it. You were a pit crew yourself? I was. So I was, like Nick said, I was um, originally from Vancouver Island, came to the United States to play hockey and was uh, I was in the Pittsburgh Penguins system, was sent down to Greensboro. I was the only undrafted player there, so they made a trade. I got sent to Greensboro and um, got into a huge opening night brawl where I was suspended for 18 games, uh, which is the <laughs> <Wow>. longest, <laughs> longest suspension in the history of the East Coast League. <laughs> wow. Yeah, not something my parents are super proud of, but um, – I thought Canadians were nice. Yeah, well, it was. You know what? It's funny. It was. It was a, a old Ivy League turf war. The guy I went to war with played at Princeton for four years, and for four years had told me had basically tried to emasculate me for four years. So it got solved that night. But anyways, I'm I'm sitting out of suspension, and uh, I meet a guy in the stands from NASCAR. My dad has a garage on Vancouver Island, and he's like, "When your dad comes down, I'll show you around." And it was 2000, back when mechanics were still pitting the cars, and. Um, Got thrown into practice and thought I would do it for a year, and that was 20 years ago. That's amazing. And you were, you were a jack man, right? I was a jack man, yep. Yeah. So it, it's one of the things that, um, and again, Doug and I were talking about this before the show, is the uh, 
you know, I come from, uh, I worked in NASCAR for a long time and you and I worked together, but I came from open wheel racing and, and European racing and what have you, where the, uh, you know, single wheel nuts, which is, you know, the world has gone mad now and NASCAR has single wheel nuts. I want to give a little shout out to Don Rich, another author and friend of ours, who is, his head has exploded the fact that NASCAR has single wheel nuts. And uh, so I'm used to Formula One pit stops. So they're doing them in two point something seconds, right? And then there's these NASCAR stops and they're taking, you know, a 12 second stop is fantastic. But the one thing that amazed me was the athleticism it took to do a NASCAR pit stop. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I got into NASCAR. I was on the leading edge of athletes coming in. I was a C minus C athlete, right? Now you look at our team. We have linebackers from the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Titans, the Commanders. We've had two U.S. Navy SEALs. Uh, we have All-American baseball players because a lot's asked, right? It got to the point where our tire changers were being asked to hit five lug nuts in under a second, right? So that's two-tenths of a second per lug nut. Doug, if you look at that, two-tenths of a second on the racetrack, these things are moving 190 feet per second is 56 feet. 56 feet at the Daytona 500 is the difference between first and sixth. The difference in money is a million dollars for two-tenths of a second. So yeah, there was a lot, a lot riding on it. So, and believe me, there are a lot of not 12 second stops. So those, those are the ones that keep you up at night. <laughs> I guess I can lead into, you have a, a book you've written called uh, the 12 second culture. And I'm assuming 12 seconds kind of ties together with that. That's correct. And, and basically it's just a story and it, it's how Mike and I took on this, this broken department and built it into what it was, you know, using diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. And, you know, it's really put us in some interesting rooms. We've spoken to everyone with the book now from, you know, we were at Notre Dame last year, big companies, you know, like McDonald's, Clover. We actually got a call last year. It hit our website. It was the Citadel. And Mike and I, wise, we love, they love Charleston. So we're like, oh, cool. Maybe it's talking to the football team. So the call comes in at two o'clock. It's a lady in a high rise building in Manhattan and she has an English accent. And right then I'm like, I'm kicking Mike under the table. I'm like, this isn't the Citadel. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Citadel Equities, which is like a $40 billion company, right? So it, it's put us in some rooms. I mean, every day I'm somewhere between overconfidence and self-crushing imposter syndrome. So uh, it, it's been a really interesting, really interesting time. That's pretty amazing. I mean, and so so it's something that can go not just from the racetrack, but to business as well. Is, is, is that kind of what you're telling me? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, especially in the United States, speed has become the new currency of business, right? It's no longer big business versus small. It's fast versus slow. You know, and for the last 10 years, our jobs have been to build the fastest teams on the planet. So what goes into that, right? And, and it's, in, it's inspiring human brilliance. It's things like, you know, how we arrive, how we fail, like all these, all these lessons that's just part of the fabric of what this is here, we put into the book. Cool. So who should read the book? Is it entertaining? Does it have humor? Well, it's entertaining because it's it's two guys with a dozen concussions that, that <laughs> decide to write a book. Our poor ghostwriter, man, he's, a, he, he's going straight to heaven, that poor guy. So I tell people it's like one level above the books that you pull the tab in the T-Rex's arms and his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think it's for people that want to lead a better way. You know, it's people that get a promotion and they've never been in a leadership spot and they have no idea where to start. And, and it's little things that all of us are capable of doing. And it starts with just caring about one another. From an industry perspective, and we, you know, we, we, we're indie writers, so we publish and uh, market our own books. You're up against a tall order out there. There's a lot of books telling people how to run companies and do things the the right way. Um, have you found a way of getting to the audience that you need to get to? You know, we've done zero marketing. What's interesting is is we do these big conferences now, and you know, like we spoke at Kubota's national convention, and it's crazy. There's six thousand people there, and if you kill the keynote, it's amazing how many books. Right. We put a, a, a QR code at the end of our presentation and, and we'll see 100 books go out the door on a, on a Tuesday. So it's been um, as writers, I think you guys know when you put a book out into the world, it's equally parts satisfying and terrifying. Right. Oh, yeah. And, yes. um, you know, when you put it out, it's been out in the, in the universe for a couple months and you've only sold 300 copies. You're like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? You know, because you always hear you always <laughs> hear about all these giant book sales. But it's been really interesting. You know, like we've had orders of 
you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred. We had an order for twenty five hundred at one time. So you know, getting into these conferences, that's really kind of our place to move these books. And and you know, we package it up with a race car and the whole bit. And um, kind of that's been our, our our way. You know, we still haven't put it on Amazon, and you know, it's not on audiobook yet. So it's a decision down the road that Mike and I'll have to make. Yeah, that'll be it'll be interesting when you do the uh, audiobook. Are you gonna are you gonna voice it if you do the audiobook? I mean, you I have a so. you I, have a very quiet voice. I'm not sure anyone will hear you, but that's the problem. Mike is so soft spoken that that's the only thing I worry about. You know what I mean? The loud idiot Canadian and the the understated uh, American guy. <laughs> we had that problem with the British guy and the and the nice, <laughs> good looking American guy. So there you same go. Thing. There you go, Doug. <laughs> so uh, for those listening that perhaps don't follow NASCAR, walk us through the mechanics of a pit stop, because we touched on it earlier about, you know, how, how much there is to it. And they keep cutting the number of guys that go over the wall now. So it gets even more complicated, right? So walk us through that. Yeah. Some of us like me don't have any ideas. <laughs> sure. So, so there's, there's five people that make up a NASCAR pit crew. So there's a, a fuel person and their job is to take a 100 pound can of fuel and have it plugged into a skidding race car in under 0.3 seconds. There's a tire carrier. His or her job is to take two 50-pound tires to the right side of the car, deliver one to the right front, and mount the one on the right rear in under 0.8 seconds. Okay. There's a jack person. Their job is to lift a 3,400-pound race car into the air with one stroke of the jack. All the while, the rest of the field is just inches off their heels. So if you want to know what it's like to be a NASCAR pit crew person, go out to the interstate, put your heels on the white line during rush hour, and turn your back to traffic. If that doesn't unnerve you, you have to take <laughs> your We may need uh, to place a disclaimer here that the show does not recommend that you do the things the Canadian says. And then finally, there's two tire changers, and their job you know, was to hit five lug nuts in under a second. Now it's to engage a single lug nut in under two-tenths of a second. So, and all that goes into to making what, what a pit crew is. So, like, uh, you said you, you bring in people from other sports. Do you choose where they go based on, like, the particular positions in the pit crew? Maybe based on their sports? Like, No, it's, it's more based on, on their body makeup, Doug. So, like, really big guys, you know, they're either going to gas or jack. You know, your more short, compact guys, they're going to change tires or carry tires. You know, like I said, for us, it's just, it's the person coming through the door. Like we have a very highly curated first day experience because we're looking for a certain type of person, right? So like things like we ask you to be here at eight. If you show up at 7.30, you get a check mark and you move on. If you show up at eight, you're gone. You're going to watch two and a half hours of practice. There's lots of dirty work. As you can imagine, greasy wheels and, you know, guys are having to clean up a bunch of stuff. If they jump into that work unprompted, they get a check mark and move on. If they don't, they're gone. I'm going to take you up to Wednesday's the hardest workout of the week. We don't ask you to lift the most weight or jump the highest. We just want to see if you can get through it, right? You're going to need some intestinal fortitude if you're going to pit race cars. We see how that goes. You know, if, if they make it through that, they get a check mark. Now imagine this. You're on campus for three hours. You're exhausted. I already told you I have 26 alphas on campus, whether that's Navy SEALs, linebackers. I'm just going to tap you on the shoulder and be like, hey, Doug, break the group out for me. So now you have to put your hand in the middle, call everyone up and say something that inspires the group. Shows me how you handle pressure, right? So if that goes good, we're going to send you for lunch with six of our people. They're going to vet you. If that goes well, you're going to sit with Mike and I. Before you come into our office, crumple up a ball of paper, put it in the door jam. We see if you stop and pick it up or if you step over it. And then we're going to ask you five pages of questions. We're going to ask you stuff like, tell me something you believe in that no one agrees with you on. Tell me who does the best job of the position you're after, right? Like I, we don't, we don't care where you went to school. We don't care how many yards you rush for in the SEC. We don't care. We care that you're a world-class human being. And by doing this, we get to kind of peel the layers away. You know, Dave Ramsey had a famous quote that even a donkey can look like a racehorse for two interviews. Um, <laughs> it, it, takes us, it takes us two years to get one of these people ready to roll. So we want to know right away, do we got a donkey or we got a thoroughbred? You know, you make a, I have a friend of mine who, who makes the joke that that interview process, and my wife is in HR, so that interview process is the uh, mutual lying time between the company and the people. So it's, it's interesting how you, how you look at that. I have another question, I'm kind of to go back, but because I'm just fascinated, but how the hell do you jack up a car with one pump? 
Well, when you have intelligent people like Nick Harvey building you 17-pound jacks that you barely – I mean, my sister could probably jack up the car now. <laughs> I because uh, I'm out there on the interstate <laughs> while they're zipping by trying to get like hey, up underneath there. And I'm, I'm uh, one pump. I'm like, man. Oh, Doug, Nick and I could fill this whole podcast up with two jacks that we worked on together. <laughs> <laughs> together. No you know, pistons and all sorts of stuff. So it's uh, – you know, it's funny because – you know, every iteration of this, it gets a little faster, right? So you need lighter stuff, stuff lifts easier. So like when I came in, all the old timers would give me a hard time because I had a 36 pound jack and they used a floor jack and they would drag it around the car. And I was, you know, I wasn't near the man they were. Well, now I look at the stuff like that Nick built and that, that we have for our guys. Now it's like 16 pounds. Mine was aluminum and not all the exotic metals and stuff that you find in this piece of equipment. It's, it's a really specialized piece of equipment. It still takes some power to get it up because what's going on is the jacks have gotten lighter and the times keep coming down. They start cutting the handle. So like I look at the handle I use, it looks like a jousting staff now. Like these guys <laughs> are cutting it. The, the fulcrum is half as long as it used to be. So you need some power to get that thing to the ground. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. There's some serious technique in jacking a car. Body weight is great, but you have to throw that body weight through the air and and add uh, a lot of momentum to it, inertia. Absolutely. It's not, uh, you know, I remember my brother came down and tried to jack a car one time and the guys watching were like, yeah, clearly it's not hereditary. Like, it doesn't run the family. <laughs> <laughs> it just bounced them right off. <laughs> it is really entertaining to watch someone uh, take an NASCAR jack and put it under the car and they pop it up against the stop and then they go, mm. And it doesn't move anywhere. Nothing moves anywhere. The handle of the jack doesn't move. The car doesn't move. Nothing moves. The only thing that moves is the human, like, heaving <laughs> on the top of this thing, trying to do it. it. You have to leap on top of it. So Yeah. And they're soul leaving because they just got embarrassed in front of all their friends. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And we do that as part of our business. Like, we take the race car to your company, and we're going to put the tires and the guns and the jacks and the gas cans in your hand, and we're going to teach your company how to work like a pit crew. So we take the jack part out because, like Nick said, it's just such a such a difficult task to, and, and it's dangerous, right? Like, I mean, you'd easily cut the thumb off your hand if you're not careful. So I have a question because with the new uh, aluminium wheels, how much weight is out of the wheel assembly? That's got to have made a difference to the yeah, uh, carrier. Yeah, Huge difference. Uh, I would say it, it took about almost the, uh, 25 pounds out of it. Yeah. You know, that's a lot. what's interesting, Nick, is instead of trying to line up five studs, I mean, you're shooting for a center hole now. It just happens so quickly. The single lug nut was a bane of my existence last year because NASCAR decided to implement all this new technology, but accompanied it with a four race suspension if a wheel came off. Now, you know what, that all we do is push margins, right? We hit three instead of five. We do. And, and there was parts where a Jackman just has to make a decision that he thinks it's on or it's off. And audibly, it was no different. So we kept shipping cars and wheels were coming off. It was just, it was a rough year, man. Rough <laughs> year. But it was a rough year for everyone. Like, I can't tell you how many people were suspended last year. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, up and down uh, uh, pit lane. So what has made that better? Just experience with the equipment? Have they changed the uh, physical nut, like the lead-ins or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think familiarity with with what it is and what it takes to to install them properly, and and like what what the boundaries are when you push. You know, I think NASCAR looked at changing the drive pins and doing some other stuff, and they literally made the rule change in December and pulled it back a week before the Daytona 500 because all of us practicing in the off season were spitting lugs off the gun left and right. We couldn't keep lugs on the race car, and we couldn't even keep them in the guns. It was going to be an absolute circus if we. So, you know, in a rare move for them, they were like, you know what? I don't think we thought this out. We're going to go back to what it was, which, you know, as well as I do, that doesn't happen every day. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So let's, uh, you know, we are writers. Um, and so let's talk about what you read. Uh, what do you like to read? Just about anything. You know what I mean? I um, Except so I have our books. Little... <laughs> Except, <laughs> Except our freaking No, books. no, no. I will send you my book if you'll read it before Nick's. So. Thanks, Doug. I, I, I've already read one. <laughs> I've already read one of Nick's. Um, so, so, so basically, I have a, my wife and I have a rule. The only place we go on vacations are places that have an independent bookstore. Like that's how like dedicated to reading we are. Like it, it is my favorite thing to do. Whenever there's rain in the forecast in in North Carolina, I'm pumped because it's just a day on the couch and I'm going. <laughs> You know, as someone who wrote a, uh, I guess, a self-help book, uh, not a big fan of those books. <laughs> I, I love. I hate I them. Love, I hate them. I gotta be honest. I hate them. 
they're, they're just they're just so I just find so many of them that, that are just disingenuous, right? And they're just trying to separate people from money. You know what I mean? Uh, what I love is I love great writing. I love descriptive writing. I love compelling stories, right? Like uh, that's why he's only that's why he's only read one of my He was one and done. <laughs> you know, like uh, Tara Westover when she wrote uh, Educated. Love that book. Just the way it read and the and the the author's use of words and how you know. I remember one one of the phrases was like in Tara Westover's book was she emancipated her feelings from something. And just to, just to use that in that line and, and the way she used it, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. I'm a fan of uh, great literature, Executioner's Song, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I just love well-written books. I went to school at, uh, this will really prove that I'm an idiot. I went to college at Dartmouth, right? So I took an Ivy League degree and went straight to NASCAR with it. Um, <laughs> it was really brilliant. But between NASCAR and Dartmouth, I, like you guys said, I played hockey. The first thing I did, because I was going to play minor league hockey and be on a bus, is I made a list of 50 books I always wanted to read and then just knocked those out over the course of the year. And it was it was heavy lifts, right? Like Atlas Shrugged and, oh and, and, and stuff like that. And then stuff that... You know, American friends would always reference like Catcher in the Rye and and To Kill a Mockingbird. That just, as a Canadian, I didn't grow up with any of that stuff. So I just wanted some type of reference point. So I hate to say it, but I'm one of the few lights on on the plane. Like there's just, it, it's so, you see so few people reading now, at least in my circles that it's, um, but yeah, you give me a, an independent bookstore and I can spend hours, hours in there. Oh, uh, you're my kind of people. Yeah. yeah. You got one of the best ones in Davidson. Oh yeah, Main Street Books in Davidson. Like those people are, you know. And and my favorite thing is, I, I find an independent bookstore, I go right to uh, the staff picks, right? They, I mean, these are people that just read and read and read and read, and, and you always find phenomenal books in there. So they always have uh, a surprise one. It's it's wrapped up, and it's uh, you don't know what it is. You don't see the cover. It's cool. I love that. Yeah, blind date with a book. Yeah, that's I, it. I, that's it. You know what? I have not made the jump yet. You know what I mean? I'm like, what if I, you know, what if I unwrap it and uh, and don't see it? But uh, there's a guy, um, I think it's William Fortune. He writes the whole series one second after, one minute after. He's like a leading authority on EMPs and and, and uh, writes all these doomsday books. I've really enjoyed those. So some of those post-apocalyptic stuff is yep, yeah, yeah. We got some friends writing in that. It's a it's a huge uh, genre. It is. And some of the old ones too are just like, it's, it's interesting. Some of those old apocalyptic books were almost foreshadowing like what we're terrified yes. of what's going on like right this minute. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just read one. It was 20, I want to say it was 2032, but I think that's wrong. It was written by a, um, a former admiral of the U S Navy and a former intelligence officer. And it's a fictional account of what happens when U S goes to war with China. It's terrifying because you know what they know. It's like they could be like you writing a fictional book on race cars. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, like it would be. You know what I mean? So I read. It. I, I opened it and never put it down. And and I think my hands sweat through the whole the, the whole reading of it. Everyone always asks me when you're going to write a book on racing, and I'm like, the day I don't want any friends anymore from the racing yeah, world. Just, <laughs> what was it Jose Canseco that wrote Juiced, and he basically alienated him from, hey, man, you want to co-author one? I'll do it. I'm almost to that point where I'm like, people need, people need to know. Yeah, <laughs> some know. of the stuff. Especially- yeah, I, have to say, I always preface my NASCAR conversations with, Okay, do you want me to ruin it for you, or do you want me to? Yeah, you know? <laughs> especially going back to when you and I first got into uh, oh, NASCAR. God. Oh my yes. gosh, the stories yep. back then. So, there's one more thing I need to ask you about before we go, and that's uh, if you if you want to talk about it, is you own a mill up in the middle of nowhere in the North Carolina mountains. I do. What are you doing? Do. What are you doing with that? Well, you know what? Yeah, and honestly, this ties back to reading. I don't think as a society we get out of the noise anymore. And, and I'm seeing it, you know, as I'm getting into corporate spaces and burnout and all the stuff I'm seeing. So I am building uh, a simplicity retreat. So it was a it was a a grist mill. It's one of the old only wooden grist mills, one of the few wooden grist mills left in North Carolina. It's a seven thousand square foot dumpster fire. This is the part of the country it is, it's in. I have a guy show up. The local moonshiner always comes by and asks what I'm doing. So one day he, he, it's, I told him, I'm like, I'm going to build a moonshine store. Do you know anyone who makes it? And he's like, yeah, sure don't. Sure don't. So I said, okay, thanks. So he comes back like two hours later and he puts a handle of moonshine on the desk 
and he said, welcome to the neighborhood, which I thought was a really cool That's gesture. Brilliant. So I keep working and about two hours later, I get a knock on the mill door and I turn around and it's a Lincoln County Sheriff's deputy, full dress, pistol, everything. And he's like, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm going to try to bring this thing back. And uh, he's like, cool, what's on the counter? And I said, um, I don't know, water, someone dropped it off, I guess. And he's like, water, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, you mind if I smell it? And I'm like, no, go for it, man. So he uncorks it, takes a smell of it. He's like, yeah, I don't think it's water. You mind if I taste it? And, and he's, he's working, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know what department protocol is, but yeah, if you want to taste it, go ahead. And uh, he said, um, taste it. And he's like, yep, yeah, no, it's definitely not water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you sure you don't know who gave this to you? And I was like, no, I sure don't. And he's like, okay. Tell Bob he did a good job with this bag. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like 1950 out there, but uh, you know what? You go out there. And all you hear is water falling over the dams. We're building great big sitting porches with rocking chairs. You can sit in front of the fire. Like we're trying to put all these things in place that evoke simplicity so that, you know, like you get when you read a book, you get out of the noise and you actually get to be a human being for a day. Brilliant. Wow. You know how much I love the mountains up there. It was our uh, great escape when we were uh, living in North Carolina. It's a beautiful part of the country. So uh, when you get that place uh, rolling, I'll, I'll, I'll be a first customer. Would love to have you out there, man. Would love it. Yeah, there you go. Kind of cool. All so, right. Before we go, we have one final thing we do, which we have a wheel of questions for you. So All right. it's high tech shit. Get high ready. tech stuff. So ready. <laughs> it's like our pit box. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I remember for the pit box we had that. So uh let me give this wheel a spin. All right. We do it for the sound effect, really. So oh, it's awesome. All right. And the question is. Who would you like to have dinner with, living or dead? You know, you get to have a chance to have dinner with anybody. Uh, sports, Pat Tillman, uh, history. Who? That's a hard one. I'll I'll just go Abraham Lincoln. Just as the default, but he's just such an amazing guy. It's hard not to not to pick him. Okay. Wow, that was the most prepared answers of all time <laughs> from the wheel spin. That was pretty. Oh, good. I don't know. <laughs> no, I just uh, yeah. Maybe Chris Farley. Uh, there, we go. there we go. That's more like it. All right. That'll, that, well, awesome, guys. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's great. A per- I, uh, perfect place I, to wrap up. I, I appreciate that. that. Shoot, I learned a whole lot about uh, jacking up cars and everything else. And honestly, I feel like I should get a little bonus star for not making jokes about one pump jacking. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so close. I, I, I held back. Yeah, I, I figured yeah, y'all yeah. probably have them all the time, but I was like, this is a gold mine right here. We're just <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming on, Sean. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Keep putting the great stuff out into the world. Thank, uh, you. thank you, Sean. Thanks. Thank Cheers. you. Wow, what an interview. Now, before we go, I got a quick <laughs> question for you, Nick. So he said something about you. Built and designed a jack? <laughs> yeah, I was um, at uh, Michael Waltrip Racing for several years, and I was the head of the test and R&D group. So we were uh, – it, it was probably one of the best gigs I've ever had because <laughs> it was me and another guy, Brian, who was a super lad, very intelligent guy. And it, when the teams came back and said, hey, we need this or that or this to be made lighter or faster or the driver's feet are getting hot – is we just had these projects that we had to go and design something to fix that problem. And uh, we were always working on the pit equipment. And at the time, it was a big deal with the pit guns. And uh, we we designed and built our own pit guns, which were pretty cool. And uh, we built this jack. So the normal jack is a hydraulic jack. Right, and yeah. uh, as Sean was talking about, it's one pump and it goes up, which takes a huge guy to do it. And um, there's a lot of time to be gained in the pit stuff if they can get around the car faster and they're carrying this bloody great big jack with a big handle right right he was saying they get the handle shorter and shorter that's so they don't whack themselves and everybody else as they're running around the car with this jack and it's amazing athleticism so we were working on making we'd made these lightweight jacks that uh, were really cool and um and then i had this idea and i went to uh my boss at the time who ran the engineering group said hey i've got this idea what do you think and he goes all right let's try it and it was it was an air-assisted jack. You weren't allowed any lines or anything to the pit wall, so it had to be all self-contained. So we used a paintball gun canister uh, with high pressure, and as you activated the jack, it gave it a burst of air to assist 
on the upstroke. We worked with this thing and finally got it. So it was pretty cool. And when I had to demo it to our uh, competition director, we brought him down and I asked, it was actually one of the ladies from uh, HR came down who was probably five foot four, you know, like 130 pounds and had her jack the car. And with one pump, she was able to jack the side of the car. (laughs) And it was the end of the season and we were all excited and everything. Well, it turned out and it, one a long a story for another day, but basically the com- the company went tits up <laughs> <laughs> and went away, and the our competition director went to work for NASCAR, and the first thing he did was ban the jack. Oh, <laughs> so wow. it never it never, never saw the light, saw the light of day. day competition. So, sounds brilliant yeah. though. Wow, so it was a pretty cool project. Kind of makes you the Jack King, huh? the Jack of all <laughs> trades. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, remember that uh, to subscribe to the show, give us a review especially a nice review, if you would. And check out the show notes for all the links to our books and social media. Also um, to Sean's book, uh, 12 Second Culture, and his uh, deck leadership, um, especially if you've got a company or know someone with a company that uh, would like a, someone to come in and uh, give them a pep talk. He and Mike are really, really good at that stuff. They're, they're great humans. All right, anything else we mentioned in the show, we'll bung in the show notes. Uh, and remember, please support the show by buying or gifting our books. That's how... Uh, we make our living is by uh, by selling books. And when, so far, we don't have a Patreon and we're not looking for sponsors and stuff for the show at this point. So buying our books is the way to support us. Right. Yes. And now uh, remember, our next episode, we're going to be called uh, Following Passions, which hopefully we'll stay on track and be able to get close to that. But we don't know. No chance. We, don't, we, know, we haven't yet. <laughs> maybe we should title the shows afterwards. I don't know. But it sounds going to be – I'm excited <laughs> about this one. It's uh, We've got a, a sailor with blogger and, and just a – She's an author and all around just incredible woman, Annie Dyke, who uh, she and her partner like just took the bull by the horns. They uh, decided to leave their jobs. Well, I guess they didn't really leave their jobs. They were full-time um, lawyers who transitioned to full-time sailors, and I guess they still practice law while they're out at sea, and that's pretty cool. But this woman has done some amazing things. Really exciting to talk boats. You know, you talk to cars this week. I get to talk boats next I week. I know. So. I've had a couple of car I ones know, now. You yeah. deserve a I need boat, a boat one. one. Yeah, yeah, so I'm excited. You're even getting a sailing. I know. Boat. Yeah, sailing. When I when I get a boat show, it's going to have big engines. <laughs> I bet it will. <laughs> hey, props to you, sir. Props to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Look look for new episodes every two weeks. And remember to send in your questions. We love getting audience questions. Two authors chat show at gmail.com. Until then, be cool to each other. Fair winds and following seas. You've been listening to the Two Authors Chat Show with Nicholas Harvey and Douglas Pratt. <laughs>